0: when Tandy Stack Challenge was considered an adequate substitute for Tetris on the Game Boy. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one's ever seems to is comedian, musician, songwriter, journalist, science fiction author and much more besides, Mitch Ben. Mitch! What are you up to where can we find it?
1: I'm literally just about to start my UK tour. Uh, time of recording, this is October 2nd and it starts tomorrow, October 3rd in the Multonkeen Stables before going on to the South End, I think it's called the Victoria, is it? On um, No, the South End Palace on Friday and then the spring and haven't on Saturday. And then basically all over the country till the spring. So go to mitchbencom slash gigs and there are many dates up there. And I'll say
0: as well, given the way the news is going at the moment, I don't know we will be seeing more songs from you over the coming weeks.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's kind of the day job now and also a very, very, very essential pressure valve.
0: Well, I'm hoping that eventually you find time to write a song about your first choice, which I'm sure very few people listening will remember, but let's hear him in... Conversation. If they didn't, we must have both been having the same dream. Of course you weren't
1: dreaming. I woke you. You nearly burnt me house down. Your house? I've lived here long before they built this place. I have. Used to live here in the old workhouse, till I caught plague and snuffed it. Snuffed it? I died, you know. You still don't get it, do you? I'm a ghost. <laughs>
0: Okay, that was a bit of a dialogue from Nobody's House, a series that I didn't even know existed until a couple of years ago.
1: Mitch, what was this? I was a big fan of this, and I'm kind of alarmed to discover that. I, I had a pretty good idea that it only lasted one season, but I've now discovered that it only actually lasted seven episodes. Yes! So basically it was over and done within six weeks, which is weird, because I remember it being a sort of majorish part of my life at the time. 1976, ITV kids series about a haunted house. This magnificently 70s family. I don't remember it being a comedy, and it's not a comedy. It's a kind of whimsical fantasy series about this, like I say, this incredibly 1970s family the father of whom is william gaunt from the champions who buy this crumbly old house which is going cheap with a view to turning it into an antiques shop and the reason it's going cheap is it's unsellable because it's basically got a poltergeist and when the family moves in the poltergeist befriends the kids because it turns out it's not a poltergeist as such it's the ghost of a little victorian urchin who can't remember his own name, and the kids christened him nobody. The house was built on the site of a rather sort of Dickensian workhouse, which has long since been burnt down. And this little urchin was left to die in there at uh, some point in the early 19th century. And his unquiet spirit has lurked around in the house ever since. So the, the idea that he's been sort of lonely and miserable for about 150 years, but there's finally kids in the house, so he sort of becomes their pal. Yeah, like I said, I remember the whole thing having almost a sort of slightly mournful quality. Almost. Do you remember the he Sapphire and Steel had that weirdly kind of downbeat kind of mournful quality to it nobody in particular I remember was played by a kid who was everywhere at the time he was a young blonde lad called Kevin Morton who at the time I seem recall was on a BBC show called Striker which was a football show and I remember that being on but not really paying much attention to it because weirdly for somebody who grew up in Liverpool in the 1970s I'm actually kind of weirdly football agnostic <laughs> you too yeah. I'll still watch it every now and again the thing is I mean football when you grew up in Liverpool in the 1970s you just took football for granted because you didn't know anybody who wasn't into football and moreover if you were Liverpool rather than Everton supporter you had no idea that other people's teams didn't win all the time (laughs) you know what I mean I grew up in a town where everybody was obsessed with football and where the local team never lost I never really developed an interest into it because you didn't have to it was like developing an interest in air you know (laughs) (laughs) it really was over the course of the series you discover that he's not the only ghost and you meet the ghost of his kind of Bill Sykes slash evil old benefactor who's actually played by Brian Blessed furiously dialing it down in Claudius fashion because he's trying to be sort of charmingly sinister rather than deafeningly enthusiastic. Basically, Brian Blessed didn't really get into the deafening thing until Flash Gordon. Everything he did before Flash Gordon, he had lots of different gears and then basically, from Flash Gordon, he seemed to just get stuck in fifth and he's been in fifth ever since. I also remember it actually being quite scary and and the last episode the kids fall out with nobody and nobody abandons the house whereupon a genuinely evil ghost called Silver Ned turns up and takes the house over promising to do some proper tormenting and haunting and he's actually quite scary but what's happened is the reason that nobody has abandoned the house is he's fallen out with the kids because he thought they were ignoring him so he cranked up the poltergeist bit to annoy mum and dad a bit more. and mom and dad have got the exorcists in and the exorcist is played by brian wilde from last of the summer wine as this sort of rather aloof scientist with this all this ghost busting equipment and he catches and destroys silver ned thinking that he's the poltergeist and it's genuinely quite grim you're not sorry to see the back of silver ned because he's a horrible character but the idea that what's been happened is that somebody who is already dead is now being further annihilated It's actually kind of... And Brian Wilde is like a slightly censorious dentist. he's like, well, I'm sorry, but you brought this on yourself. I remember at the time watching that, and I would have been, what, nearly seven is the end of 76, and actually finding that actually pretty disturbing. So maybe that's why it was never renewed, because it actually goes into some slightly, it's pitched as a kid show, but it goes into proper kind of ghost story territory. It deals with the same kind of ideas as, say, a proper grown-up ghost story about, you know, what an unquiet spirit actually is. At one point, nobody relates the circumstances of his death and it's all incredibly bleak. You only hear him talk about it. And then there's also this rather touching episode where it's one of the kids' birthdays and they throw a birthday party. Oh, and nobody is as visible or as invisible as he wants to be at any given time. And they throw a fancy dress party to which nobody turns up dressed obviously as a Victorian urchin because that's just what he looks like and so nobody for one day gets to pretend to be a regular kid and it's actually quite moving he ends up having this sort of rather heart-to-heart conversation with dad whose house he's been haunting for the whole series but he- uh, heretofore we completely unaware of his existence I don't know if exactly if it was ahead of its time in many ways it's incredibly 70s but I remember being sort of really rather taken in I, I bought the book you remember back in those days that was all you could do was buy yeah. the book that was the only hard copy of TV show that were available. I mean, we all just had a great outpouring of this, of course, when Tones Dix died a couple of weeks ago. And my old pal, Jenny Colgan, who bizarrely I was at university with, said something like, you know, never even got an MBE and probably got more kids into reading books yeah. than the top 20 YA authors combined. Absolutely. The first book I read cover to cover was his Genesis of the Daleks novel. So anyway, I bought the Nobody's House book and I think I've still got it somewhere at my mum's house. It has now come out on DVD, so it's probably going to be sort of reclaimed by the collective consciousness. But for a while, there, I was the only person I knew who had any memory of this show whatsoever. It's weird what sticks in people's heads and what doesn't, isn't it? Well, I've
0: got a theory about why it's possibly not as well remembered as, it was more or less contemporaneous to The Ghost of Motley Hall, which was really yeah. bleak at some point, and Rent-A-Ghost, which did bleak, people forget about that, especially in the early days. I mean, the whole thing yeah. was, it was, Rent-A-Ghost was originally founded by a man who was too afraid of his parents' reaction to tell them he was the, dead. He was dead, yeah, that's Fred yeah. Mumford, yeah, exactly, but, yeah. The the, thing is, they've both got really spooky theme songs even if one of them yeah. has Michael with being camp with the top, whereas Nobody's yeah. House has got this jaunty synth instrument. Yeah, it
1: does, yeah, it's like an like Alan Hawkshaw thing going, yeah. Yes. it's like
0: something you find in the Bob Stanley and Pete Wiggs compilation
1: of early 70s B-Sides. Yeah, it sounds like a sports show theme tune, you know yes! what I mean? It sounds yeah. like the kind of theme tune that the darts would have had in like 1976 <laughs> or something, you know. It's, yeah, I think maybe that's it. The things about those shows that stuck in the memory don't apply here, because I bet you there's people who could sing you the theme tune to rent the ghost who couldn't name you any of the characters. The Ghost of Molly Hall, I only have dim recollections of, but Nobody's House, for some reason, that that really stuck in my mind. It was one of those ones that I found a fragment of it on YouTube many years ago, and it's another one that you find yourself pondering by what means has this ended up on YouTube? Who's got this, and how? Because 76, as you've discussed on the show, there were domestic video machines from about 1969 onwards, but they cost about five grand each, and they were the size of a piano, you know, whereas your, your VCRs really came in I guess 78, 79 was that? I know I didn't get one till 86. I was way behind the curve. But I think sort of 78, 79 was when people first started to get videos.
0: And it's in some ways, it's lucky it all exists, because some ITV stuff from around that time doesn't, because tapes reused. I know they were, were still wiping. Well, I'm guessing nobody uses telekinetic powers to blow the engineers down the corridor when they were coming to wipe it. And that's <laughs> like the only thing I can assume. Okay, well, nobody may have been a spirit in the material world but I don't, <laughs> I don't think this band would have recorded oh, oh the my. cover of his theme tune, even in the 86 version. <laughs> i have forgotten this existed till you mentioned it, so let's just hear a bit of it and wonder why it was done later. A
1: young teacher the of school girl She wants so a knows what she wants to be inside
0: You might be thinking that sounds a bit like Sting singing Don't Stand So Close To Me, but very, very wrong. And it is Sting singing Don't Stand So Close To Me, but very, very wrong, because it's Don't Stand So Close To Me, 86. Mitch, why?
1: Here's the weird thing. I didn't realize that this had been forgotten until I think I was driving along in the car with my girlfriend a few weeks ago. The version of Don't Stand So Close to Me that everybody knows, the one I've said in the original from 1980, that I think came on the radio or something. And she said, apropos of nothing, I've got this weird memory that this song used to sound different. And I said, well, no, this is the original, definitely. And she said yeah but I seem to recall there being an earlier version that was kind of slow and mournful and I said that's not the earlier version that's the 80s redo and I didn't realise because I was a big fan of The Police They're probably the first band I was into in my own right because they broke when I was about 8 and this came out when I was 16 this was kind of the last thing they ever released I mean they did briefly get back together again about 10 years ago and it was the lead single off their first Best Of album which came out in late 86 because The Police had basically split up in 84 the last proper album Synchronously in 83, toured it all over the world in 84. Totally fell out over the course of that tour, and that but no, they had already basically been split up for two years by the time they released this. I didn't realise that this song basically existed for the few months it was out, and then got kind of airbrushed from history. When I first mentioned this to you, you brought up another couple of examples of this of kind of eighties redos of hit that were then instantly forgotten again. I'd forgotten until you mentioned it that the Cure re-released Boys Don't Cry in '86 with a new vocal track.
0: Yes, yeah, they, they've completely erased that from history.
1: Yeah, and that. And then mention that again. I don't know, I think basically Robert Smith got annoyed by how whiny his vocal was on the original and redid it, singing it more like he did a kind of head-in-the-door kind of era. But the other one is the movie version of Pretty in Pink by the Psychedelic Furs. Oh, yes! With the blaring saxophone intro. You cannot find that now.
0: The L.A. law theme version, I call
1: yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what you also used to get, of course, in the sort of the late 80s, was sort of horribly overproduced remixes of 70s soul classics. So you get stuff like, you know, Lovely Day by by bill withers but it would have all kinds of horrible synth brass and then all the same stupid samples that would all the dance hits of the day you know Oh yeah, I know you gonna dig this. You know, this is a Janet into Sap. Those have been justly forgotten because they're terrible remixes. This isn't a remix. This is a completely different version of the song. As in substantially different. As in the verses are more or less the same, but there's an extra chord in there. The chorus is actually completely different. I heard a rumor at the time. It's weird. I don't know how rumors used to work in the eighties. I find myself thinking this now. I know how rumors work now right? I know how rumours start, and I also know how you can check up their veracity. Rumours start on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find out whether they're true or not with a bit of Googling. Whereas, in the 80s, I'm not sure how I used to hear stuff that wasn't sort of officially announced, and I also know that I would have had no way of checking up on whether it was. The rumour I'd heard was that the original plan for that Best Of album, which came out in 86, was that they were going to redo all their hits. They were going to redo sort of radically different versions of all their hit singles from Roxanne onwards and put that out as like their last album So it was going to be almost a retrospective rather than The Greatest Hits, in which rather than just put all the hits on, they were going to redo all the hits. But for one reason or another, they only ever got around to doing this one. Either they just fell out again, or there was some reason why they couldn't do the rest of them, but they only ever re-recorded this. But this was a single, and there was a video, and it did chart, but it's been erased. It's been airbrushed. It's not on Spotify. It's not on Apple Music. And those are basically the two things that define whether or not a song exists. Exists in the modern era. The closest thing I've been able to find to it on Spotify is a live version by Sting from about 2000, in which he kind of uses a version of this arrangement. But all the other versions of it are either the original from Zat and or live versions that sound like the original. I mean, I can kind of see why it has dated more obviously than the original. The Police had such a distinctive sound that it's ended up being kind of timeless. It was kind of of its time at the time, but it's so idiosyncratic that it's just the Police. It doesn't sound like 1980 it sounds like the police whereas this is just covered in 80s it's got 80s ladled all over it it's got you know the uh, big delay phasey guitar track it's got what sound like programmed drums which is an absolute crime if you've got stuart copeland in the building And you're programming the drums. So I can kind of see why this is not fondly remembered. But I didn't realize until I realized that my girlfriend, who's a bit younger than me, she literally hadn't heard this since it came out when she was five. So she has the kind of memories of this that I have of nobody's house. It's only when she mentioned that that I thought, wait a minute, does nobody remember this version except me? And I did a bit of Google for it. And like I say, it's not Spotify, it's not Apple Music. It was only then that I realised that this version has kind of been Trotsky'd. You know, it's been kind of removed from history. It didn't just fade from the public consciousness, it was removed from the public consciousness. I did some digging
0: into it. I found out that lending weight to the rumour that you heard, they also yeah. did the do 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 da 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 86, which apparently sort of came out under the counter on a compilation at one point point. and it's now, that's disappeared too, but the other brilliant thing I found out was apparently Sting and Stuart Copeland I mean, it's not unusual that they had a fight in the studio, but doing this they argued about which drum machine to use, genuinely which make of drum machine to use on this.
1: Oh god yeah, well I mean the thing is that's why I couldn't believe it when they got back together again 10 years ago and I'm really annoyed that I missed the reunion tour, but the police were very much Stuart Copeland's idea, It's It's just that by recruiting Sting on bass and vocals, he accidentally recruited a sort of a songwriting genius and overbearing personality, and the next thing you knew, it was Sting's band and that wasn't the plan. The weird thing is Sting is one of those guys that you literally will never ever read a kind word about. Every interview with him, he comes across as an arsehole, and every article ever written about him is about what an arsehole he is. I met him once and he was delightful. I was at this celebrity party in 2012 which I had no real business being at and the only person who I struck up a decent conversation with all night was Sting and he was delightful he was utterly charming and polite and really laid back and audibly Geordie as well when he's off the clock (laughs) I wonder if it might just be that he's had so many bad experiences with journalists over the years that if you are talking to him in any kind of even tangentially journalistic capacity that he will just stare you down and freeze you out but if you just happen to bump into him socially, he can be perfectly charming. Because I say, I met him and he was delightful. And I, the whole time I'm thinking, this is really weird because this is the classic Don't Meet Your hero scenario. Because I've been a massive fan of this guy since I was like nine years old. And everything I've ever read about him says he's a twat. And I really shouldn't have this conversation because, oh my God, he's delightful. He was utterly charming. Did you ask him about Don't Stand So Close To Me 86? I did not because I did not yet read <laughs> Realized that it had become the Trotsky of 80s hit. You know, that it had been purged from the public consciousness. I thought it was just a vaguely interesting do-over of one of their hits that they did once. And it kind of ultimately ended up serving as the farewell single, because the video is a retrospective. And in fact, the 12-inch version, which I bought, I bought the 12-inch <laughs> version, begins with two vocal samples from police hits, which absolutely nail the fact that this is the farewell single. Because during the intro, you just hear a line from Roxanne, specifically, those days are over. And then you hear a clip from Castan loser, goes, you go, alas, goodbye. And you think, oh, okay. But yeah, I didn't realise that it had been stricken from the record. Well,
0: I wonder if. This is real extrapolation here, but maybe one of the reasons is that have you ever heard Too Depressed to Commit Suicide by the Heebie-Jeebies?
1: Oh, of course I have. Yeah, well, of this, course this, I... this
0: arrangement sounds more like that than the original did.
1: It does bit. I was a massive fan of the Heebie-Jeebies because I was a massive fan of Radioactive. They were doing the Radioactive reunion show at Edinburgh this year, and annoyingly it was on the same time as me, so I never got a chance to see it. But I was fortunate enough uh, about five, six years ago now to briefly take over the part of Zephon, in the touring show of Hitchhiker's Guide. In the cast and being the musical director for that production was Phil Pope, who was, of course, the primary songwriter on Radioactive, I'm on the EBGBs, and with Steve Brown, did all the songs on Spitting Image as well. And I was finally able to thank him to his face for me having totally stolen his approach to musical parodies. Because I used to love the musical parodies on Radioactive because they didn't just... Baron Knights it. Not that there's anything wrong with the Baron Knights. They didn't Baron Knights it. They didn't Weird Al Yankovic it. They wouldn't just take somebody's song and write funny words to it. They would write, I mean, you know, Too Depressed to Commit Suicide is a classic example. It sounds like every police song from the first three albums and no police song in particular. Rather than just take a police song and write funny words to it, write a police song that you've never heard before. I did a police tribute a few albums ago on my album Crimes Against Music. There's a track called Too Much Money, which is my attempt at doing a police tribute. I, I was able to finally thank Phil sincerely to his face by the way that way I do musical parodies I totally stole that from you and I don't think that came as a surprise <laughs> right well I'm
0: struggling to think of a decent link into your next choice other than that you mentioned two of them I found there was a third one so let's just pretend these figures were based on the police here's an advert for them the ultimate confrontation cyborg saviour of earth against android a new horrible adversary capable of mutating giant crushing legs and Feared arms of great power, dealer in destruction. Beat that cyborg. Is this cyborg's answer? The Invader, a fantastic new intergalactic starship with an interceptor pod and built-in weapon system. Cyborg versus Android, with the Earth for the prize. Okay, that was Dennis Fisher's Cyborg, Mutant and Android being advertised in 1975. Mitch, tell us more about who they were.
1: I have subsequently discovered that this is basically a rebadged Japanese toy line. So much of what we were into in the 70s was actually rebadged Japanese stuff, be it toys or indeed cartoons. I think I found out that Battle of the Planets was Gatchaman about five years ago and that basically the episodes weren't even about what they'd been about when they were Japanese (laughs) which is why in retrospect an awful lot of that show didn't even make an awful lot of sense. This was I think a rebadged Japanese toy line which is called Henshin Cyborg which is just called Cyborg by the time it turned up in in Britain in the 70s and it's interesting because it's unusual now I think for sci-fi toys in particular not to be merchandise of a film or TV show and this wasn't. This was just an entirely freestanding science fiction toy line, but it was kind of contextualised by means of these rather lavishly illustrated comic strips on the back of the boxes that they came in, explaining that Muton was this alien warlord who had its sights Ming-like on the Earth and was determining to destroy the Earth, and that the finest minds on the planet had combined to produce this living super weapon called Cyborg, who was to be our last hope. But they were rather striking. The toys, they're, they're, they're an interesting sort of intermediate size. They weren't quite Action Man size. They're kind of nine inches tall. Mm. So they weren't sort of Star Wars figure little, but they weren't quite Action Man big. But what was particularly striking about them, apart from the fact that in retrospect, they're really obviously rebadged Japanese toys. In particular the bad guy. The bad guy comes with all these kind of costumes you can dress him up in that are just screamingly manga. They're called subforms on the sub-forms. box. Subforms. Yes. yeah they're called his subform and they're just screamingly toho scope and godzilla movie you know but at the time i was like five so i didn't know or care about any of this what's striking about them is that they're, they're transparent which is kind of scintillating in cyborg's case and downright disturbing in Muton's case because cyborg is a perfect he is a quite well sculpted complete with sort of quiffed haircut sort of doll like He's naked, which is a bit weird. He hasn't got any genitals, but he's naked. And he's rendered in completely clear plastic with exposed gold mechanical innards and brain. Muton, on the other hand, was purple. He was still transparent, but he was purple. And because he's biological, he's just full of exposed organs. If you hold him up to the window, you can basically see his brains and his heart and lungs and his intestines. He's like a sort of curious intermediate stage between a regular action figure and those kind of, you know, those kind of 3D anatomical things that they sell in those rather pompous science toy shops. And it's all terribly improving (laughs) and not much fun. And he's genuinely quite disturbing to look at because he's just full of exposed organs. And then in due course they brought out a third one called Android who's meant to be Muton's evil robot sidekick. And what's noticeable about him is that his chest opens up like a drinks cabinet and he fires missiles out of his nipples. He's kind of dark translucent black plastic with like little Glowy green plastic eyes. But these are really nicely rendered, these toys. And in particular, you could then and I'm not sure how, I forget when I got these. I think I got maybe Cyborg and Mute on for my birthday when I was either five or six, because I know over the course of the next few months, on various special occasions, I managed to Do you remember the Toy Center on Allerton Road?
0: I do, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You now you see I, I grew up right next. Sorry, listeners, but this is just a bit of <laughs> 1970s Liverpool banter, and you're just gonna to sit through it. So we're going to talk about a specific shop (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that we were there from our childhood it's now a big Costa coffee and about three streets up from that is where Stephen Brotherston, who wrote scarred for life lived because he was one of my best mates at, uh, i know he's been on your show he was one of my best mates at primary school and he doesn't go on about this much but he's the most naturally gifted comic book artist i ever met when we were eight years old we used to write comic books i'd write them and he'd draw them he could draw like brian bolland when he was eight but yeah he was one of my best mates so this is going back to when steve brotherston and i were knocking around together yeah i think because i had this biggest toy shop about 50 yards from my back door. I would regularly get sort of on various special occasions little kind of supplement packages because you bought the figures but then you could buy lots more weapons for them. The figures kind of dismantled, you could pull their arms and legs off and replace them with these weapons. So Cyborg, I remember in particular he had a kind of rocket powered skateboard. But you don't stand him on it. You you don't stand him on it. You remove his feet and glue it to it and and attach it to his ankles. And he had one gun attachment that was actually a little water pistol with a little rubber bladder on it so you could actually get it to squirt water, which is just adorable. Yeah. Having researched this, I've discovered that the toy line that it was based on in Japan in the Star Wars era got basically kind of redesigned to get it down to that Star Wars figure size because, of course, what all the toy manufacturers realized, the genius of Kenner producing the Star Wars figures at three inches was you could then produce the vehicles and actually have the, fi- the vehicles and the figures all part of your same little toy universe. So they then got resized and rebadged and they ultimately became Micronauts. Do you remember Micronauts? I do
0: remember Micronauts. I remember yeah. not having any of them and wanting them. But- I had a few.
1: I had a few. If you remember listeners that Micronauts were sort of made out of translucent plastic with little shiny metal heads and you could kind of see through them. They were a subsequent evolutionary phase of this thing I'm talking about. Because I remember, I think it was for the Christmas after I got them, I got the crowning glory of the cyborg and mutant toyverse which was cyborg's spaceship which was called the cybo invader because you know nine inch action figures to have a spaceship and put those into it's got to be enormous and it was i mean thinking about it, it was probably only about 12 inches across but it was the biggest mfing toy i'd ever had when i was about six and it was this big lump of green plastic that was like this full-size flying saucer that you could stick cyborg in and the command chair that you strapped him into Popped out and grew wings and became like this little wow escape. But no, no, this stuff was really, really good again, like a lot of stuff. Because I mean, something I didn't realize because a few years later, I also then got a lot of the uh Dennis Fisher Doctor Who stuff, and I didn't realize that the Dennis Fisher TARDIS was a rebadged Star Trek Transporter. Oh, that's
0: right, yes, until
1: yeah. I saw the Big Bang Theory episode about them buying the Star <laughs> Trek Transporter toy, and I thought. <laughs> Oh, that's why. Because if you thought about it, it made no sense. Because the Dennis Fisher Tardis, you stuck the Doctor in it, spun the top, pressed the button, and then the Doctor disappeared. And you think that's not how the Tardis works? No. <laughs> yeah, you no, no, get, no. It wouldn't make You mean don't to get, into the, TARDIS, you you get yeah. into the Tardis and then you disappear. You get into the Tardis and then it disappears. So <laughs> I remember thinking this is quite a nifty mechanism but actually in, from a sort of storytelling point of view it makes no sense. And it was only when I saw the Big Bang Theory episode of Mego 1970s transporter room toys that I, I realised belatedly that that's what the Dennis Fisher TARDIS was. It yeah. was a transporter room toy with a cardboard TARDIS stuck around the outside of it which is why that toy never made any sense. Cyborg Mutant
0: and Android marketed by Dennis Fisher who did the Doctor Who toys. So like you were saying about you know the compatibility of sizes. Technically, yeah. you could have made your own off-script Doctor Who adventures by oh, yeah, 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 introducing because...
1: them into the the Who universe. Yeah, exactly. Because they were more. I mean, the the the, the Doctor Who figures were about nine, ten inches, weren't they? So yeah. yeah, you could you could technically yeah introduce those guys into your own toy Who universe if you wanted to. And then I guess also they probably would have been about the right size for the Mego Star Trek figures. It's interesting because Star Wars was such a turning point in so many ways. It came out in the States in June 77. I was 7 years old and word of this amazing movie started to, you know, get make its way across the Atlantic almost immediately. Its UK release date was Boxing Day 1977, which I believe is about to become relevant to this conversation again. But then it came out in Liverpool a few weeks later. So I my 8th my birthday was in January 78, so I went to see it for my 8th birthday. But it changed so many things and I think one of the things it more or less Not eradicated, but made, I'm I'm sure, much harder to sell, was the non-merchandise toy line.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: I mean, you get it happening in reverse now that they make the movies about the toys or you get it happening simultaneously with stuff like He-Man which was like jointly conceived as a line of toys and a cartoon show but I think you would have a lot of difficulty now conceiving and marketing a toy line that existed independently of any other kind of franchise or medium
0: yeah I mean I remember shortly after these is what I think may have been the last one to actually be successful was Ron the Space Knight but even that they did comic books they moved him around they made him an adjunct of action man at one point it's like they couldn't decide. post-Star Wars, where to put him to the extent that, apparently they want to introduce him into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but the rights are all over the place for all different media, and they're having so much trouble untangling them that we're not going to see him in whatever Nick Fury's doing out in space at the moment, unfortunately.
1: Well, I mean, this is why, you know, you keep having all this kerfuffle about Spider-Man, is that for many years, who owned Spider-Man and in what medium was actually the subject of litigation? One company had the rights to do him in cartoons, one company had the rights to do him in movies, but didn't. One company had the rights to do him live action on TV, but hadn't but since the Senate. And the reason it took as long as it did to get the Sam Raimi movies made was that there was a dispute over who owned how much of Spider-Man for quite a long time. And now, of course, he's still the one that Marvel doesn't completely own, which is why Sony Pictures keep trying to take him back, or rather rather grudgingly allow Marvel to incorporate him into the, uh, into the story arc. Yeah. Although it's fairly obvious that they were going to find a way through that one. That was just negotiation in the press, that's all that is. It was absolutely not in anybody's interest not to have Spider-Man in the MCU anymore.
0: Well, I did notice, I'll just give a quick shout-out to Seb Patrick from Twitter, who the other day, when Boris Johnson's plan started to fall apart, when it started to look like Trump might be impeached, he did tweet saying, all I need by the end of the day is Spider-Man back in the Marvel (laughs) Cinematic Universe, and it
1: happened. So, thank you, Seb. Please predict some more things. Well, that reminds me of a a rather grim joke that went around the, the internet about three or four years years ago, which is, Alec Ferguson has retired, and Thatcher's dead. Somewhere there's a scouser with a lamp and one wish left. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I hope he doesn't wish for the rights to Cyborg, Mute and Android, because I'm feeling they might still be quite complicated. But your next choice, I think, probably even the people that own the rights wouldn't own up to owning the rights. So, here's a clip related to it, because I couldn't find the actual thing. Stay, said the bird. Stay. Stay. As the summer midnight
1: passes And the rosy dawn is fingering the eastern sky Enjoy the day And the dew on the spider's web and the dappled light under oak and ash, well, the think. ocean swell, and the seaweed shore, and the widespread gull, the limpid shell, the thin, heady air, and the mountain peak, and the stream that swells to a river spate, and the garden walled with the scent of thyme, and the furrowed field where the foxes lie.
0: That's early 70s progressive rock group Flaming Youth performing a song called Guide Me Orion, which later turned up in your next choice, Mitch, which is, well, what was
1: Orion? Oh, I'm not sure it did turn up in it because that seems to be a theory about this thing. This is a really, really weird one. And bizarrely... I was prompted to think of this by listening to one of your podcasts, by listening to Looks Unfamiliar, because I just started listening to them. Oh, these are great. I- I'd love to do one of these. And somebody mentioned, was it Starstormers? That was me. Starstormers on Jack
0: and Ori, the live-action one. Yes. The
1: weird yeah. thing about that is I have no memory of that whatsoever and I remember thinking that's weird because that sounds like the kind of thing I would have been into because you know I remember both seasons of Captain Zep I remember noticing it was a different Captain Zep for season 2 I bet even the guy who played Captain Zep in season <laughs> 2 doesn't know he was the second Captain Zep I remember being slightly annoyed that we didn't get a regeneration sequence anyway the point is that Star Stormer thing I remember listening to you talking about that and thinking huh that's weird I don't remember that at all and that sounds like the kind of thing I might be thinking I, I would like to but I only thought what is it reminding me of though and so i thought oh my god orion now in my head i remember watching this i think on a bank holiday in the afternoon and in my memory it was sometime in about 1978 now i've since done what very very little research there is available to do on this thing and i've discovered that its two broadcast dates were Boxing Day 1977, which is the day Star Wars came out in Britain, and it was then repeated in September 1979. So I think I saw the September 79 screening because I have no Christmas associations with this. What this was, was a rather sort of Godspell-ish science fiction rock musical, which I think was entirely written and conceived for BBC TV. As far as I know, it wasn't ever a stage production it may have had some connection to a largely forgotten concept album of which more in a minute but it was the story of earth is undergoing some kind of ecological breakdown kindly scientist has invented a spaceship with which to take a select few refugees to some new home on another planet and the whole thing is told in sort of prog rock opera form. And I remember it being shot in the manner of, a, in that kind of intermediate TV stage form of sort of those Sunday night Shakespeare's, you know what I mean? With the sort of a more preponderance on big wide group shots than you would normally get on TV. And the sets all feeling very kind of stagey rather than sort of TV sci-fi. So I'm wondering whether it was almost being pitched as a kind of a West End musical. The curious thing is, the more I think about it, the more I realise that I remember a hell of a lot about this programme. And I can only have seen it the once, and I don't know anybody else who remembers anything about it. As far as I can tell, there are three mentions of it Anywhere on the internet It's got an IMDB listing It's got a listing in the BBC genome And it's got a listing on the BFI site And I cannot find any other mention of it Anywhere No, it's not
0: even on TV Creep.
1: Now, there is a mention on the IMDB site That thinks it was based on This concept album by Flaming Youth Or certainly on which Flaming Youth appeared Featuring a, a pre-Genesis Phil Collins On drums and vocals Which was a concept album about the end of the world and refugees fleeing on a spaceship to another planet i've heard that one track that's on youtube i don't remember that so i do remember the opening number because i remember it opening and closing with the same scene i can. this is the crazy thing about my memory right i have real difficulty retaining any information that i actually need I can remember stuff that I will never need to know in crystal detail (laughs) decades later. So I remember it beginning with a young man standing in front of what is probably a blue screened alien landscape and him singing an opening number. And I remember the first two lines. I remember that they are. I am the eldest of the children. I am the firstborn of the captain. And I remember those damn lines. And then you flash back to The World Is Ending, kindly scientist who looks a bit like Jesus. I remember that. he has got long hair in a bit. Because the whole thing is so 70s, it's outrageous. I mean, it's actually, it, was, it came on in the, at the end of the 70s, but it's got this real kind of prog feel to it. Welcoming aboard all these refugees, including one who basically announces himself as the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he gets on board the ship, And kind of and in my mind, I remember I remember him looking a bit like Brian Croucher, you know, second Travis from Blake seven kind of, you know, slick back black hair and just he's just the bad guy. And he's obviously going to be the bad guy and he almost has a song as he comes on in which he declares that he is the bad guy and anyway as far as i remember the plot is once on board this spaceship heading towards some unknown destination we have a sort of callow innocent hero kind of luke skywalker type and he and bad guy fall in love with the same woman and she marries good guy to the disgust of bad guy But what really offends him is the fact that the kindly scientist, who is now the captain of the ship, marries them because he's the captain. And that's one thing that captains of ships can do, apparently. And bad guy exacts his vengeance on good guy scientist by tricking him to make some repairs on the outside of the ship and then blasting him out the airlock. So good guy scientist dies halfway through. And then, the young hero, in some way, I don't know, either manages to kick the bad guy out the He wins. Somehow he wins. And the bad guy is defeated. And then it ends, or rather the main body of it ends, with either them finding the planet they're going to, or he and his wife now having the first baby to be born on the voyage. The first ever human being not to be born on Earth. And then it cuts back to the young man standing up it and singing, I am the eldest of the children. I am the firstborn of the captain. So you realize, almost anticipating the narrative device of Mad Max 2 from a few years later, this is being narrated in flashbacks from the point of view of the baby who is born at the end of it. And that we presumably, we have now run forward about 20, 25 years and a whole new generation of people has made it to the planet they're heading to. What freaks me out about this is not so much that it exists, it's that I can remember it as clearly as that i can it, it was appears to have been on twice it appears to have been on a christmas 77 and then repeated sometime in september 79 and for some reason i remember it being on like an in the afternoon on a bank holiday or something the weird thing is is looking at the listings of it it says book by melvin bragg yeah it's not so much it's written by melvin bragg it's just that the, what's weird about that is in terms of a musical what the book refers to is it refers to the non-song bits of the script But I remember there not being any. I remember it being pretty much a rock opera rather than a musical. Because the distinction between a musical and an opera is in an opera, there aren't any spoken bits between the songs. The whole thing is sung. And I remember there being one dialogue scene and it being quite weirdly jarring. And it's the scene where the bad guy tricks the captain into going outside the ship. And that bit, I remember being rendered in spoken dialogue. But I remember it being the only bit of the whole show that was. (laughs) Well, there's another
0: weird thing about the credits. Well, there's another weird thing still, which I'll come back to in a minute. But I noticed it was directed by Jeremy Swan. Is that name ringing a bell?
1: It's ringing a faint bell, yeah.
0: He directed, most famously, Rent-A-Ghost, Grandad, Galloping Galaxies, B.A.D. Boys, all the zany children's BBC, like, comedies,
1: and this! Yeah, it had that look to it, though. That's the thing. It had a very, very BBC TV look. Definitely, like, three-camera gallery shoot, you know, that kind of thing. Almost certainly rehearsed to perform as live, but like with the with the director cutting between various angles, they're obviously singing on set. It's not like all Hollywood musicals prior to Les Mis, where the 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 singing would be pre-recorded and they'd mime along to it. They're singing on set like you would in a stage musical. So I mean, I remember that. It, it's just this really bizarre thing, and it seems to be it seems to exist in three in four places: the BBC Genome, IMDb, the BFI website, and my head. Those seem to be the four places in which this exists. Well, the other thing I found out about it was whether or not the actual songs made
0: the jump is something that, as you say, is difficult to verify, but there is a, yeah. a direct, concrete link between Arc 2 by Flaming Youth and Orion, because they were both written by Howard and Blakely, who wrote yeah. a lot of songs for David, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch, Joe and yeah. so on. That's the thing, the album isn't really prog, it's kind of like late 60s pop with loftier ideas, yeah, I'd yeah, say. Yeah. But I remember The reason I know about it was I remember for years in Harry Records in Liverpool, that was up on the wall for about £70, and nobody bought what? it. Arc 2. Arc 2 was. Yes. It was. They used to have loads of albums and plastic sleeves up on the walls with ridiculous prices on them, and that was one of them. And it never shifted, and I'd always thought, weird. what's that album like? Yeah. And I had no idea they had this link to this long, 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 forgotten one-off TV thing, which, as you yeah. say, things that were on on bank holidays were always a bit weird anyway. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's why they stayed in your mind, because they weren't like what was normally on TV.
1: Possibly. I mean, the thing is, it is a one-off, and it is a one-off, because as far as I know, not. I mean, it's funny, because the the closest sort of analogue I can think to is is, is, is another one that you mentioned on a previous podcast, is that Christmas musical with Tommy Steele, you know, Quincy's Quest. Quincy's Quest, yeah. It's that kind of thing. It was sort of a, as far as I can tell, apart from being possibly based on a prog album, which to what extent it was i couldn't honestly tell you because i don't remember that song that's on youtube being in the show you got a conceived for tv musical has there been one of those recently i don't know i mean you get things like you know once more with feeling the buffy musical episode yeah. you know um but i'm trying to think has there been a conceived for tv musical oh i'll tell you what there was you've already you mentioned it on another one of shows Was body contact body contact yeah now that was the most effed <laughs> up thing i've ever seen that really was that was a really screwed up this weird sort of of cyberpunk rock musical, <laughs> partly written by a couple of guys from the Human League and starring the cool black guy from Aliens, and Timothy Spall as a hitman, and uh, Miriam Margulies as a sort of gangster's mum. That was about 1987, wasn't it? I'd love to know if anybody's got a copy of that thing out there anywhere. You know, if anybody knows anybody who might be able to, to, to if only to, to satisfy my curiosity and, and assure myself that I haven't some way invented this entirely in my head, and then just found something on the internet which sounds like it vaguely corresponds to to it.
0: Well believe me, if there's one thing the show does, it smokes out whatever is out <laughs> there.
1: It brings them out of woodwork.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping that nobody offers any examples of your next choice because they would have gone a bit stale by now and or melted. But I can't find anything to illustrate this, so here's A completely unrelated advert, sort of.
1: Hey, you say you're getting tired of lettuce and tomato hamburgers in this town that don't quite make it? Yeah! You say that just once you'd like your hamburger hot and your lettuce and tomato cool and crisp all at the same time? Yeah! Well, I say, you got it. I'm talking McDonald's new lettuce and tomato hamburger, the McDLT. I'm talking
0: quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. And the hot side. Stays hot. The new McDLT DLT. Hot hot. Crisp, lettuce and tomato on the cool, cool side. And the cool
1: stays cool. The new McDLT Cool, crisp. The beach stays hot. The cool stays crisp. Put it together, you can't resist the hottest taste, the coolest dish. Keep it hot, hot. Keep it cool, cool. McDLT, DLT, Mick DLT, hot. Lettuce and tomato hamburger ever!
0: U-M-D-L-T. Okay, that was a very young Jason Alexander advertising McDonald's a short-lived self-assembly burger that came in different sections with the unfortunate name the DLT. So this is a bit like, Mitch, what were two-stage self-assembly ice cream
1: cones? Two-stage self-assembly ice creams coming from the 1970s. Ice cream was a very different beast in the 1970s. It, the way it was sold and the way it was consumed was different. It was mainly sold as a sort of individual lolly ices, mainly from, like, newsagents. And also, there were, like, two principal brands. There was Walls and there was Lion's Made. They were kind of the Marvel and DC of ice cream <laughs> uh, because shops would sell one or the other, but not both. So there was obviously some kind of deal that you would do with Walls yeah. or Lion's Made that they would be your ice cream supplier and that never the twain would meet and my local sweet shop mr farthings on allerton road was a walls shop and as such i would find lion's maid shop slightly disorientating <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh no, it's a lion's mane shop. I don't know which ones I like. Oh, and then you would get, you know, your tubs that you could buy in the supermarket, generally of that rock hard, bright yellow vanilla stuff. Haagen-Dazs was a million years in the future, <laughs> um, as was Ben & Jerry's. Did they eat them on Orion, did they? <laughs> very possibly, yes. The thing was, then, how to sell ice cream cones, still a very popular ice cream format, within this ice cream vending framework, because the way one gets an ice cream cone now, even then, of course, you could get ice cream cones from the ice cream van where you get that weird semi-fredo gelatinous stuff that apparently Margaret Thatcher invented. But, of course, you're not going to get that in a newsagent because a newsagent is not going to install one of those machines. And you kind of your gelateria ice cream parlours where they've got it all in the big buckets under glass and then they scoop it out into the proper waffle cones. Again, that had not yet appeared. So the only way of getting an ice cream and oh, The way they finally got round it, I guess, was the Cornetto by packing the ice cream all the way down to the bottom of the corner and then sealing the whole thing in paper you could finally sell ice cream cones out of the big chest freezer in a newsagents and i remember the and i guess cornetto is what finally put paid to the item i'm about to describe because i remember a cornetto emerging in about 1977 1978 and also horrifying people by how expensive it was <laughs> because it was about 30p For a Cornetto, if you remember. Yeah. And this, and this was at a time when ice creams were like 8p. So Cornetto is just like an outrageous extravagance. Previous to that, what they had was this. And the place I particularly remember buying these was the Café Stroke Ice Cream Kiosk in the middle of Calderstone's Park.
0: Whoa, that's brought back memories. Oh, yeah. Wait, you I mean it was, it was actually open at one point? Oh, I yeah, it, was it to be shuttered.
1: No, I know, I know. It, it, but the, the, the ice cream, the, in, in Calderstone's Park, which is in the bit of Liverpool where Tim and I grew up, there is a big old kind of stately home in the middle of it. I suspect the park was, was originally the grounds of this home. And when I was very, very little, there was a cafe opening there. There's another cafe opening there now, but it's in a slightly different part of the park. It's around the back of the Japanese garden in a kind of stables. But um, they're renovating Calderstones Hall right now, so hopefully it's going to be um, – because they also had a kind of weird open-air stage around the back of it where they used to put shows on in the summer. Yes. Yeah. Um, I yeah. saw Candy Flip perform there once. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. That's extraordinary. I mean, there's too many eras clashing into each other now. But, but anyway, that is the place I principally remember buying these. Here was the solution that was found to selling ice cream cones from a newsagent or just cafe, It would be sold in two stages. The proprietor would have behind the counter a supply of rectangular ice cream cones. So <laughs> these are ice cream cones, which are basically in the shape of an extended flattened Pyramid. So it tapers to a point at the far end, but then it has four flat diverging sides ending in a rectangular aperture. So this is what you've got. You've got a weirdly rectangular ice cream cone. They would be kept in a kind of cardboard box behind the counter. And if you wanted an ice cream cone, you would get that from the proprietor. And from the freezer, you would get something which looked for all the world like a small block of butter. (laughs) And what it was, was a rectangular slab of vanilla ice cream. And it was then up to you to carefully unwrap this slab of vanilla ice cream at one end. Feed that end into the rectangular aperture of that rectangular ice cream cone and then ease the paper off the other end (laughs) of this block of ice cream. And then, congratulations, you have now assembled your ice cream cone. It's this two-stage self-assembly ice cream cones. And I don't know what the hell made me think of those, but I remember that that's how, if you wanted an ice cream cone... Before the rise of the Cornetto, if you wanted to get an ice cream cone from a newsagent, if you didn't want a strawberry midi and you didn't want a Sky Ray or any of the other sort of ice lolly variants, you wanted some actual ice cream that's what you did. There was another option though, which was you could have gone to the classic yeah. cinema
0: on Allerton Road oh, and I got did. a King Cone without going to see the film.
1: Oh yeah. Which well, I classic, did more than once. But... The classic was where I saw everything. There's a fascinating show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us, which yes. uh, has, you know, anybody who's into this podcast should definitely have that. It's not all applicable if you're British, because some of it is about toy lines that didn't really happen here. But the one which is about Star Wars is quite fascinating, because it, it, it outlines something which I've forgotten, is the reason and Star Wars was the first movie to be heavily merchandised is you didn't bother making merchandise per movie because movies literally existed for a week before the advent of the multiplex a movie came out it was on your local plate for a week the week rolled around and something else was on. So there was no point merchandising movies because movies occupied the popular consciousness for literally seven days. You know, you merchandise TV shows in the 70s because they were on for a good few months a year and they'd probably be back next year. So it was worth producing an entire line of merch for it. It didn't even occur to anybody to make... Because, I mean, one of the things that the show is about is, of course, the fact that the movie Star Wars came out in 77. In, in there was this mad rush to get merch lines on. And they couldn't actually get them in the shops in time for Christmas. So you ended up having to buy, basically, certificates. You know, this is to certify that you've actually bought Luke Skywalker, although he's not going to be in the <laughs> shops until February. You know, they actually they actually had to sell... Like certificates for Star Wars figures in Christmas 77, because it's only after the movie came out it occurred to everybody that it was the biggest merchandising opportunity of the 20th century. Because people didn't make movie merch, because movies didn't last long enough in the popular consciousness. They came out, they were on for a week, and they went away. Weird, isn't it? Well,
0: I just want to dial back a bit to your point about Walls and Lions May being like the Marvel DC of Ice Cream. Which one was which? Because I've got a theory about which was which.
1: Walls was Marvel and Lions May was DC.
0: Exactly, because I always him. saw lions <laughs> made as being, a, it always felt a bit kind of goody two shoes like It felt a made. bit
1: austere, didn't it?
0: It felt yes, a
1: bit Wolves was funkier. Another Walls. kick. Yeah. Wars is a bit anarchic, and Lion's Maid felt a bit uptight and austere, much as Marvel, certainly in the 70s, was much funkier than DC. DC always felt a bit stuffy. You know, even now, Marvel comics seem to belong in the 70s, and, and DC seems to belong in the 40s. I think that's possibly one of the reasons they're having such difficulty getting any levity into the DC movies, because those characters don't lend themselves to levity as well as the, the, the Marvel ones do, Absolutely because they're not. they're not being thought up by Stan Lee. Who, whatever else he was, was a damn good time. Stanley knew how to enjoy himself, and that <laughs> used to, and that used to come through the, co- the comic books that Stanley was having the best time making all this stuff. DC often feels a bit worthy, you know, and I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why they're having real difficulty trying to settle on a tone for the DC movies, whereas the Marvel stories are just much more immediately cinematic. They just are. How do you think
0: Stanley would have coped with the two-stage self-assembly ice cream? <laughs>
1: and I don't think he would have bothered. First of all, he probably would have sent some minions out to some pro- to some proper Italian gelateria and got him the real thing. Steve Ditko on the other hand would have thought that ice creams were a decadent.
0: <laughs> he'd, he'd have been like that no he'd have been like a bit in head where Peter Talk holds the ice cream until it melts because
1: yes. he's sad. Yes. <laughs> Yes, to be like Pop. Pop. Yes, yes. Jack Kirby would have designed his own ice cream. Jack <laughs> Kirby probably. Yeah, in fact, that's probably where we got the cornetto. <laughs> it was an ice cream cone designed
0: by Jack Kirby. <laughs> Well, a two stage self assembly ice cream cone probably would have proved useful to the presenters of your last choice. This was such a big part of my student days, and I'm really glad to be able to play a clip from it now. You won't believe how many takes it took to say that. Let's hear some food wrangling action in action. Get started! Get started! Get started! Get started! Yeah! Get started! Hello, my name is Wig. And I'm Maxine. And we're going to cook corny flaky bakey. Because we don't think cornflakes should just be for breakfast.
1: Mm-mm, no. Mr. Chefs, cornflakes, what do you do with them? Cornflakes, put them on your bowl in the morning. And cornflakes, no <laughs> those top of things in the evening. they
0: lovely, go on, I get them every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. hey, meanwhile. <laughs> should we go to the shop and, go and buy some ingredients? Let's.
1: Okay, that was a pair of presenters from Mitch. That was Get Stuffed. And I was watching Get Stuffed in the summer of 92 when I just graduated. And something which I think will be quite a fascinating thing to look into at some point is the evolution of overnight TV in the 80s and 90s. ITV only went all night in about, what, 87, 88, something like that? The BBC took quite a lot longer to go overnight. And, and even then, it, all it did was basically turn the news channel on at about 2 o'clock yeah. in the morning. But ITV started to go overnight in about 87, 88, because there was no overnight TV in Britain until the late 80s. And there wasn't much in the way of actual late-night TV until the mid-80s. I remember one of the first things that Channel 4 did was keep going till about 2 in the morning and stick the Emma Peel Avengers on. But this was from 92 and what i found fascinating about this is if you look at it now it was despite the fact obviously just a bit of zero budget fuck it this'll do filler to be stuck on between shows to tie up underruns and stuff at like three o'clock in the morning. Because this was never billed. This was never scheduled. It was one of those five-minute fillers that would turn up between shows at 2 a.m. So you had never had any idea when it was coming on. It was almost like an extended advert. But what I find fascinating about it, if you look at it now, it successfully anticipates the YouTube aesthetic. Yes, yeah. By about 20 years, it looks like a YouTube channel. It looks like somebody doing a zero-budget cookery show off their own bat on YouTube. But it's from 1992. And what it does is it kind of anticipates that there's no disguising that this was made for no money, so let's embrace it and make it part of the aesthetic, which is very much how YouTube kind of... There's a different aesthetic on you. I mean, for example, I do it with my videos, jump cuts. Jump cuts used to be completely verboten on any kind of broadcast video, hence the noddies. The noddies, folks, is when you're doing a two-person interview with one camera, you stick the camera over the interviewer's shoulder and film the interviewee's answer and then you switch the camera back to put it what usually then you let the interviewee go and then from the reverse angle you film the interviewer repeating all the questions again usually to an empty chair but you also get about a minute and a half of the interviewer looking interested and nodding and this is called the noddies Because if you want to cut into an interviewee's answer, you couldn't just have the jump cut. You had to cut away to something else. So when it cuts back to the interviewer looking interested and nodding, that means they've just cut out a big chunk of the answer, at which point the interviewee probably went off on some mad digression. But on YouTube, nobody gives a shit about that kind of thing. On YouTube, you can do all kinds of jump cuts between the same angle. They do that on Get Stuffed. And it's an interesting little late-night TV curio. And there's a couple of them up on YouTube, I think. There's been all kinds of things under the title Get Stuffed. You might have to search down the page to find it. But it was a late-night cookery show in which basically people would just show you their favourite recipe, obviously shot on like handheld, I guess, handycams in those days, cut together with little bits of kind of hand-manipulated animation, you know, just sort of drawings on bits of paper. It's kind of fascinating because it looks completely contemporary but it's from the early 90s. Well what strikes me watching the couple of examples that are on
0: YouTube is how much the idea of because it was very studenty it tends to be students yeah. presenting it cooking with you know bits of leftover bits of pasta and so on but the way that the whole vision of them has changed because they look nothing like students now and you know <laughs> the music that plays over it sounds like a Sultans of Ping FC rehearsal tape. Well it does You've sound like put that on anything yeah. aimed at students now.
1: Yeah. It's, it's very kind of tinny electric guitar you know and it's uh. so I mean I guess in that respect in some respects it's kind of of its time because it's kind of a very much a sort of an early 90s indie kid version of kind of bohemian life but I'm just thinking you know on a technical level it looks like it was made now yes um, yeah. you know that's what's interesting about it it kind of anticipates a genre that didn't yet exist that kind of zero budget homemade video content because the thing about it was back in those days people were already making stuff like that but you would never get to see it because there was no would have put it whereas um, with the advent of youtube anybody can make anything now it's not just that anybody can make anything but anybody can make anything and then anybody can see it anybody can make anything and then give it potentially as big a distribution as if it was being made by the time Warner corporation but that would be an interesting thing to do would be to sort of you know Plot the evolution of late night TV, like stuff like Night Network, which I remember being the only person who would watch in the TV room in my halls of residence in 1988. I would sit up to like four o'clock in the morning watching this bizarre overnight magazine show, which it would do things like stick episodes of the Adam West Batman on at three o'clock in the morning for no apparent reason. And then also. The fact that I liked the early 90s phase when it was stuff like Get Stuffed and stuff like Mariella Frost movie review show and that kind of thing. And then also there was a lot of music stuff on. There was a lot of rock video stuff on. And then it went through a really tedious sex-obsessed phase at the end of the 90s where it wasn't erotic. It was just tiresomely bawdy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was also, I know exactly the, what you
0: mean.
1: <laughs> it, 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 yeah, there was nothing, nothing remotely titillating about it. It was just, mm. it was kind of sex obsessed on a sort of Benny Hill show level. Mm. And he had like there was a, a sex based game show called Carnal Knowledge, one of the first things Graham Norton ever. Yes, yes. Yeah. It was on about nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight, yeah. and it was just utterly de- because by then we were in the throes of that desperately awful kind of lad culture phase of the post Britpop era that was just utterly depressing because it was so joyless there was no actual joy it was all this kind of grim-faced forced ribaldry I don't know I just found the whole thing to be utterly bloody depressing I really did but it seemed to be kind of a reflection of that well it's two o'clock in the morning so we should be talking about dicks you know why <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's, have you got anything interesting to say about Diggs? no well let's talk about something else then <laughs> you know uh, uh, and, and and so yeah i remember got, and then the worst ever period was about 10 years ago when they all put the casino shows on that i think is one of the bleakest periods in british tv history because these are shows entirely purely conceived and executed with the sole intention of of screwing money out of drunken, stupid people. That is the sole purpose of those shows. They have no entertainment factor. They have no enlightenment factor. They have no social factor. They exist. They're basically somebody playing three-card monty on your telly in the hope that drunken, stupid people will give them a tenner. Thankfully, that didn't seem the last. There's still a couple of the channels... Somewhere down in the really grim end of, you know, the digital TV spectrum, just before you get the babe station that are still showing all that kind of thing. (laughs) But it's fine. I just wanted to talk about this because this is kind of not entirely on topic, but how I got into sort of cult TV fandom in the mid 80s. And one of the things I really miss about it is there was this kind of pirate thing going on because that stuff was really difficult to get hold of. Yeah. Channel 4 showed, I think, the Colored Diana Rig Avengers and then went back and showed the black and white uh, Avengers. The one that really got me into it was the 83 to 84 repeat of The Prisoner, which is a show that I'd grown up hearing all about because my dad was a big fan of it. So He was always telling me about it. And we used to go on holiday to somewhere not that far from Port Merion. So he'd always go on about The Prisoner. And I was just fascinated to see this show. And then I saw it, and it was even weirder than I remember it. So I became an obsessive Prisoner fan. And we used to have, I don't know whether they still do have the big conventions in Port Marion, but we used to go to those in the 80s. And these were the most nerded out anybody's ever been. This this was (laughs) the most hardcore nerdy, you know, you can take your San Diego Comic-Con and shove it up. this You have never nerded out. Like we used to nerd out at the 80s Port Merry Cons, because you would have the convention and we'd all turn up in costume, you know, all with the pipe blazers and the boat shoes and everything, and we'd play the chess on the lawn and we'd maybe have the election parade with the speeches from the election episode free-for-all. And then we'd all crowd into the town hall and we'd do screenings and me and my mates would do the cabaret, you know. I mean, we were like 18 at the time, it's bizarre. But me and my mates would always do the end-of-convention cabaret. And The thing is, a lot of the buildings in Port Main are actually rentable holiday cottages. So the really hardcore, having done the convention the first weekend, would then stay there for the week. And what we would do is it would be things like, oh, mate! You've got to get up to Unicorn House. Somebody from the Manchester group's got the whole of season one of Department S. <laughs> <laughs> because you couldn't get hold of this stuff. <laughs> I mean hardly any of it had come out on VHS there was no such thing as DVD (laughs) there was no such thing as the internet and some of this stuff hadn't been repeated since it was first on way before anybody in this country did. because I don't know if you ever used to go to Doctor Who conventions in the 80s but what you used to notice at the screenings the end credits would always be crashed by Australian continuity announcers because the only way you could get hold of VHS copies of like early Tom Baker and John Purchase stories was mates in Australia would video them and post them to you because they were still being repeated on Australian tv more or less on a loop so even the ones that hadn't been shown in britain since like the early 70s would come round on a regular basis on australian tv so yeah the screenings of Doctor Who comes. The end titles will be bragging by coming up next on Channel 9. We've got, you know, oh, this is just weird. But some of the stuff was really difficult to get hold of because some of the stuff had never been repeated for all kinds of slightly dodgy reasons. UFO hadn't been on since about 1973 because ITV was startled by how grim it was. I think yeah. they were kind of expecting it just to be live-action Thunderbirds. But it's actually really bleak and violent. So it never got repeated. It's been very, very rarely repeated. Mm. And I remember you got really au fait with the different home video formats. Because everybody knew that you couldn't play American tapes on European machines. If you can get hold of a dual-standard NTSC slash PAL machine, you could play American tapes on them. But nobody had a dual-standard machine. You could play French tapes. But they came out in black and white yeah. because France used a weird variation on 625 PAL called CCAM, which would play on a PAL machine, but come out in black and white. German tapes you could play because they used 625 PAL the same as the British TV networks. And I remember there was one guy who was the only guy we knew who had a copy of the whole of the only season of UFO. And what he'd done is he'd managed to get hold of a German version from a mid-80s German TV repeat on VHS managed to track down somebody who'd reel-to-reel sound recorded the whole of UFO on its initial broadcast, then managed to get hold of a stereo VCR with an overdub facility and redubbed the whole of that VHS collection and created the only existing VHS copy of UFO. Well, it's funny you should mention UFO, because I
0: remember there was a late 80s ITV Saturday lunchtime repeat of it, except for the controversial episodes which they put into Night Network, I
1: think there was The
0: Cat With Ten Lives, which obviously has the seance in it. Yeah. Yeah. The one
1: with Alexis The one with Alexis all the Prisoner fans remember that one because Alexis Cannon's in yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Is it the square triangle with the scene with Jane Merrow in her underwear? Whichever one that is. And also, Mind Bend, the first hallucinogenic drugs one, and of course yeah. The Long Sleep, where two hippies encounter the aliens on an acid trip, and yeah. it's depicted as, hey, acid is really quite fun. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know where that came from, because I don't imagine Jerry or Sylvia were, you know, down at the Middle Earth, like, listening to Ada Oster and Arthur Brown, but... Who the hell knows? Who the hell
1: knows? You know, I mean...
0: (laughs) But, yeah, it it was only, I think, in the early 2000s that BBC Two showed that in the daytime, and that had always been... I think some regions dropped it on the original one, but, yeah... Night Network, perfect home for that, when they were yeah. showing it in the late 80s. But yeah, the tapes that went round, I, mean, I remember things like... I remember seeing bootlegs in the late 80s of the Tomorrow People with yeah. a Texan TV announcer and I ident before them. And they were, they were being copied loads of times, in black and white, and my thoughts were always, why the hell was this on in Texas to begin with? Yeah. Who has recorded it? Who has converted it? Who's copied it again and again and again, so it's gotten to this state. Nobody seems to know.
1: No, no. I mean, the question is is not who, but why? But that was the thing. Cult TV fandom in the 80s had this weird kind of pirate-slash-detective aspect Mm. to it because you used to have to really work to find this stuff. And now if it hasn't been on DVD, it's up on Amazon. Half of it's up on YouTube anyway. You know, I mean, there's things like, you know, I think, I spot the other day, I think, is it Clockwork Oranges on Netflix? Really? If you think about what we, do you remember what we used to have to go through to get hold of Clockwork Oranges? Oh, Vegas? yes. Oh my God. It was like, you know, and then you end up with this kind of German porn standard VHS, <laughs> you know, and it's. was, it was and now you just, you know, literally click, and the bloody thing plays on your Feeling phone for like you're free. Feeling like you could be arrested for having it. As I well. know, I know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, but it's 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 extraordinary how easily accessible all this stuff. So they don't know the bomb these days. They don't know the bomb. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit weird that this stuff is so easy to get a hold of these days. It's also fun that this stuff is as easy as to get a hold yes. of. You know? yeah. It's quite nice that you can illustrate your, you know, when you're trying to explain this stuff to people, you can just send them a link. And they go, oh, that, you know, apart from Orion, which which is nowhere, which exists only inside my mind. Maybe it will turn up. But just back to
0: get stuff for a second. The reason I've got such fond memories of it was, you know, there is this thing about people will point to something like, I don't know, our friends in the north or, you know, a high concept HBO drama and say, it's like they saw my life and put it on screen. And the only times I've thought that were about Get Stuffed, where the people on it were exactly like I was around that time. Yeah. And the Adam and Joe show, basically, around that time, me and, in fact, a couple of former guests on the show were being involved in shenanigans around then. Hello, Stephen and Vicky, if you're listening, which you should be. But we did all kinds of things. Like we were always making stupid little films, and we actually did the thing of seeing if, if you drank Diet Coke and had loads of Pop Rocks, would your head explode? We actually tried that before it was on Adam and Joe. And <laughs> if seeing things Things like that, where they stepped outside what television was supposed to be, basically by saying,
1: here's you and your mates. Yeah. We're making no concessions to glamour here. I know, I know. But that's, that's what's so fascinating about looking at it now, is it, is it feels like watching somebody's YouTube channel. It, it was sort of one of the first conscious decisions to make the fact that we're making this for no money. The aesthetic, rather than something we're trying to compensate for, we will fetishize the fact that this was made for eight quid, you know, rather than try and dress it up. Yeah. Well that gives us a great excuse
0: to just finish on if you want to plug your YouTube channel please
1: go ahead. Oh my well, my YouTube channel is Mitch Ben Patreon but if you just look for if you just look for Mitch Ben I mean, I'm chucking stuff up on there all the time now. I mean, I'm having a great time in that respect. It is. It, I mean, one thing I will say about the, the 21st century is the stuff you can do with the stuff you've already got is amazing. I mean, I occasionally look at my phone and I think to have the sheer level of immediate functionality I've got just from carrying this thing about. As recently as the late 90s, I would have had to been driving around in a van full of equipment with with two other guys. You know, I mean? <laughs> to help me operate all that equipment. You know, it is extraordinary that what you can do and the speed you can do it now. That's not to say that you know we, we you know we do live in troubled times, but they have their compensations. Well,
0: speaking of the speed at which you can do things, I'm hoping to actually have this up tomorrow. So
1: that'll be lovely.
0: And go and see Mitch on tour, everyone. We
1: must do this again sometime. This is fun. Definitely,
0: yeah. it has be the
1: pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
0: can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how, and why, I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers expert. More details, timworthington.org.